Okay, I'm going to try to keep this short because this conversation went way longer than we planned. This episode is a collaboration with my fellow podcaster, Joey Ayub of The Fire These Times. We talk in detail about the research I was doing before starting my show, as well as how it connects to Joey's current research. We cover neoliberalism, capitalist realism, hauntology and ghosts, and all sorts of issues with temporality and imagining the future. Fun fact, The Fire These Times was actually the podcast that encouraged me to start Solarpunk now. I listened to some of his episodes on Solarpunk while I was still learning about the genre and deciding on a central theme to design my own show around. The conversations that Joey curates are really deep and interesting, and they cover perspectives from all different walks of life around the world. The Fire These Times is a really great project from a talented host, and you should definitely check it out. Before we jump in, though, I just want to mention that I'm doing a fundraiser right now. Running a podcast isn't the most expensive thing in the world, but it does cost money, and your support this year would mean a lot. Your donation will help me cover the cost of web hosting, software licensing, and basic equipment, and it'll help me keep the podcast growing and work towards releasing episodes more frequently. If you can, please check the link in the description for where to donate. I'm Luca Dowell, and you're listening to Solarpunk Now, the podcast covering politics, philosophy, science, and whatever else it'll take to get us out of this mess. Join me, and let's demand a brighter future together. My research before I started the podcast um, was a lot on neoliberalism and specifically looking at neoliberal subjectivity. So what it is to be a subject of neoliberalism, what what sort of mental formations that Mm -hmm. creates, how we think about ourselves and others, uh, how we think about our behaviors in the world and how a, a big part of that is like how economics manifests in everyday life um it's sort of made this transition from the academic research world to like how we think of our everyday behaviors um and so that's a really critical uh i guess it's it's a really critical way that we can feel trapped in capitalism or neoliberalism and i think it's really important to understanding uh our current predicament and how we get out of it um, mm-hmm. and so solar punk for me, uh, it's kind of an experiment. I'm, I'm trying it on for size. Uh, but so far it seems to be a really good, like antidote to a lot of the ways that I see us being trapped in our current status quo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, depending, we'll see how the conversation goes. I might change mm-hmm. the title, but for now, like it's, I think it's some, it's going to be something along the lines of solar punk and neoliberal selfhood or, or subjectivities, maybe something along those lines. We'll see um talk to that's a good that's a good place to start i think just talk to us about like for those who don't know any anything you just said (laughs) what does that actually mean (laughs) what 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 do you mean by like how we is it like how we think of ourselves under uh neoliberalism essentially and kind of explain that a bit if that's okay okay yeah for sure how how far should i go back should i define neoliberalism (laughs) go for it do that i mean it's so difficult but go for it Yeah, I mean, so everybody everybody has their own, like, pet definition of neoliberalism, and that's, mm-hmm. I think, it's cool and fun and funny, but also maybe part of the problem and why 
uh, messaging doesn't get through sometimes. People love to hate on the term and say like, oh, neoliberalism just means whatever you don't like. Um, But no, that's not that's not how I see it. I see it as a specific um, philosophy or intellectual tradition. There are there are distinct thinkers you can point to in the history of um, economic thinking. And they have gotten together and done these conferences. I don't want to make it sound like a total conspiracy or something, but, you know, it is a a philosophy that there are books about that you can read. And it's been really influential on policy, especially after World War II and the fall mm-hmm. of the Soviet Union. It's kind of become like the new uh, the new paradigm for political economic policymaking. Um, and it's also it's got this really. Uh, I guess, personal dimension to it. We, we've sort of internalized a lot of it. Um, so. One example that I, no, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Like one example that I usually uh, think of is one, what we, we have this tendency, most folks listening probably can identify with this. Uh, like even when you're on a break, like even when you're not quote unquote working, like legally, this is like your work hours or you have to, if someone goes to an office or whatever, a lot of folks are these days unable to pause their brains. Like they're kind of, we're always thinking in productive terms, like, oh, you know, I could do this in the next two hours, or I should be doing something now, even though this something is sometimes not even defined, at least in my case. Um, mm. You know, that that's one of the ways that there was this book. Um, I forgot the name. The guy has a like super Dutch family name. I forgot the name, but uh, it's like the self under... Okay, ignore folks can Google something self identity and market market identity. <laughs> Jesus Christ, this is useless. Sorry, ignore me, listeners. Oh um, my God, this sounds but, familiar. I might see if it's in my reading list. Hang on. Yeah, I think first name is Paul. That that's as useful <laughs> as I'm getting here. But essentially, like when I read it, it was one of those books recommended by Georges Monbiot at some point. It was like in 2016 when I read it, and it also went into this like th- this idea that even when we're not doing what we are quote-unquote required to do you know for most folks who like have let's say a job or a regular job or what have you especially if it's like a nine-to-five thing or whatever we still have some something in us is not like the separation between work and personal life let's say is not as rigid anymore in that sense totally yeah um uh, i did not find the name of the book uh but we can move on so (laughs) um i had this moment uh, must have been a couple weeks ago, I was falling asleep and I was thinking, okay, I've got a few minutes now before I fall asleep. What can I do with my brain that would be like productive, that would set me up for my day tomorrow? Mm-hmm. It's like that level of every every minute in your 24-hour day, even when you're sleeping, it has to be optimized. It has to be productive. You have to be investing in your human capital um, and that that comes from the enterprise model of the self or the enterprise model of um, human being. And that was something that Foucault introduced this great series of lectures called The Birth of Biopolitics. Um, and that's that's just a really great introduction, both to the intellectual history of neoliberalism that I was talking about, um, but also this enterprise model that um, he sort of uh, outlines a framework for. So under classical economics, uh, which would be like classical liberalism, the understanding of of human beings is as like rational economic actors in a market. And what, what is relevant for classical economics is 
our behaviors in the aggregate. So supply and demand, um, these sort of like trends that once enough people are behaving in a market situation, making choices, you can say, okay, the demand is at this level or whatever. Um, but with neoclassical economics, uh, it gets this sort of update um, where market analysis is then extended to the individual and the individual becomes something that can be analyzed with these economic tools. So what you see is a transformation from us just as actors making choices to enterprises. Like um, we are each of us, our own company competing against other companies. And that metaphor maybe isn't, isn't the full picture, but it's a pretty good place to start for understanding why we feel like we always have to be productive. It's because we're a collection of assets and productivity is one of our assets. Mm -hmm. So if we're not, constantly working on improving that or happiness is another one we have to be happy so that we can be more productive um you know we're not competing effectively if we're not constantly working on investing in that human capital mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one of the um, kind of like the the fault lines for me in some sense when i think of like my own past it's i used to be and i still am to some extent but like to like it's been kind of um diminished let's put it that way or weakened but i used to be really into languages and language mm. learning uh quite literally just for the fun of it like there was no i was i grew up in lebanon and there was no point learning japanese like it didn't it did not further my my career in any way shape or form but i did it um i don't speak much of it but i learned a bit like basics and stuff just because it was fun there was really no other purpose and that uh time spent like you know on it which is like I, I i never calculated obviously because that was part of it but you know days and weeks and months or whatnot uh it's much more difficult to do now uh obviously because i'm a, i'm on a different age i have different responsibilities blah 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 but also because i've internalized a lot of the past decade and and this idea of having to maximize you know personal branding and that sort of thing i've done my best to both at the same time i have to sort of play that game on the internet to some extent while at the same time constantly having to fight against it and push back and not let it define me so i, it, I literally go through like ups and downs basically at times like i need to take a step back i almost quit social media like 10 times maybe in the past decade you know different things um but as it happens, you know, I'm still kind of in that world. I'm trying to balance needing to be in that world for like financial reasons or whatever, while at the same time having this like life that doesn't entirely depend on it and whatnot. And the balance is pretty dif difficult. And even that, even being able to strike some kind of balance, as I said, a pretty pretty weak one, one that doesn't necessarily last too long often. And I, have to, I go through phases, as I said, like a few months where I'm just reading about how I need to you know, relax and take control of my own time and blah, blah, blah. And then other months where I'm like completely into it and stuck glued to my phone and, you know, what have you. But even that is in some sense uh, a privilege these days, which is saying a lot, uh, not, not a lot of good things, but it says a lot because most folks actually don't have even that time, or at least the, the, the resources needed to, or, yeah, I mean, I think folks know what I'm talking about. Like the time to to sit down with yourself and not have to survive economically or whatever. But we're not necessarily talking about that, right? Like we're not talking about, and I, I hope it comes, it's obvious to listeners, but like I'm also not blaming anyone for not doing better. Actually, that's the entire point is that doing better and always, always needing to optimize the self and whatnot is literally part of the problem. But it's so difficult that even the language of, because, you know, 
it's like the 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 analogy I have sometimes is like when we think of growth in the sense of like economic growth, the term growth sounds positive, right? And it's easy to uh, confuse that with like obs uh, obsessing over GDP and you know that sort of thing, when the actual indicators for like a happy life or a stable life usually don't have much to do with that. Actually, sometimes it, it stops. And there are episodes on this. Folks can 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 go back to the. I forgot the name of the title. One of them was with Julia Steinberger. I remember. So folks can can. There's like two or three episodes with her. One of them will be the obvious one. So that that's one of those things. So when you say stuff like degrowth, right? It sounds like. Well, we're having stuff, 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 more things, more things, and now we're going to stop having those things, and that's not a good thing. Because even in the language of degrowth, for example, we, like I'm, I'm part of that movement, we have to sort of use a language, like kind of literally borrow the language from growth, essentially, economic growth at the very least, in order to make the case for degrowth because it's become so hegemonic. And even when it comes to, you know, I want to be able to take proper breaks. I want to enjoy naps. I want to sleep whatnot. I find myself looking up the tools to do so uh, in the same way as I would like optimize my note taking and my productivity and my whatnot. Like the, it's gotten so hegemonic that even it's almost like I forgot that this is literally something one can do like naturally with one's body and whatnot. But that, that, that's where we're at. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a trip being a like a a leftist thinker who's still like very much participating in these things that I'm criticizing like mm. I'm so aware of like oh my god the fact that I'm beating myself up right now for not being productive that that kind of thing is what I am trying to fight against or like point out how peculiar and arbitrary that is but it's still it's still there in my brain it's still like so foundational to how i think about my life and what i'm doing um there's a german philosopher byung-chul han mm -hmm. who talks about this sort of internalization of power um and his book uh, is called psychopolitics he's got a couple books um but that's probably the one i would recommend starting with um and psychopolitics is sort of a reformulation or a, an extension of Foucault's concept of biopolitics. Um, and it's where neoliberal power has, uh, I think the, the way he summarizes it, or like the subtitle of the book is like how neoliberal power has discovered the mind or the psyche as a field of domination or a mm -hmm. field of productivity. Um, so, you know, our, our psyches are in a sense complicit in this structure of power we reinforce it in like our negative self-talk to ourselves um it's it's not just that so, something that i think is really critical about this it's not just that we internalize it or believe it it's not just you know we accept our subjugation or whatever we we enforce it on ourselves we become the the manager of the employee so like if you think of the mind or the self as as a capitalist firm, we are both our manager and our employees. We're managing ourselves. We're disciplining and punishing ourselves. Um, and our our behaviors on social media, um, they they start out as, you know, it's just it's exciting. It's exciting to connect with your friends, share about your life. There's a lot like when I first got a computer or a phone and started exploring what was out there it was it was really fun and 
I didn't even realize the ways that by participating in that I was sort of aligning my my desire, my enjoyment with power. So under this new system, we there's maybe like this classical model that people have of like a factory of like the place where labor happens and there's like this boss that's like disciplining his employees really harshly and like you better get back to work and they all resent him um but what happens now is desire is actually cultivated and it's cultivated in these ways where we think we're just enjoying ourselves and maximizing our self-pleasure but actually the ways that we do that are complicit in power. We're participating in mass surveillance, like mm-hmm. willingly, pleasure, pleasurably. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, pleasure becomes an asset for us to maximize because it makes us happier and more productive. Um, and as long as we're consuming something in our self-care, as long as our self-care is financially benefiting someone, it's not a waste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the... the, the other side of that and oh i mean one of the yeah i mean it's multifaceted obviously right and one of them is for example uh, myself as a writer uh one of the things that kind of freaked me out at one point is when i realized that i was actually catering a lot of not just my writing but my thoughts on how they they might look like in a twitter thread like quite mm-hmm. literally this started like i started picturing it in in those terms and the thing is that it's a normal thing to do in the same way when you're writing let's say pre-social media on your laptop, you start picturing your text on the screen on the laptop, right? And before that, the typewriter or whatever. So like the the mind is doing something that's very normal for it, like for us, right? It's just that the difference this time, if we're talking specifically about like surveillance capitalism, which is a an element of neoliberal capitalism, at least a more recent one, more recent manifestation, um, I, get, I get fuzzy on like the specific differences at some point, but... I know that, like, if you want to chronologically, like, neoliberalism really peaked, or at least started dominating in the 80s, and since then has continued. And surveillance capitalism, obviously, is, is more recent in that sense, let's say, decade, decade and a half, maybe two decades or so. The difference is that between, like, let's say, the laptop in and of itself and the laptop, or let's say my me as a writer on the laptop and me as a writer um, on Twitter or whatever, is that Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, uh, are not neutral places, right? Like they're not, they're, they're, they're actually talking back to you, so to speak. They're, they're, they're surveying you quite literally. This is how the algorithm works. I think many folks kind of understand the gist of things, although the details for most folks are kind of very difficult to, for me as well, like to grasp because for one, Usually the algorithm isn't open anyway. You don't know how much data they have on you. You don't actually know how much it works. But okay, let's digress a bit from surveillance capitalism because that, that's obviously one one of those aspects. In the first episode of this year, of 2023, I'm talking as if we're already in January, <laughs> uh, but it's going to come out in January for most folks, except for Patreon supporters. Head out to patreon.com slash the first episode is going to be with Andre. The first episode of the year is going to be with Andre, who you know, you, you've you had him on your podcast. So he he has the uh, skin, it's called Hydroponic Trash, is, is the, the Twitter the Twitter and TikTok handle. And we talked about um, Mark Fisher's last, or at least the title comes from Mark Fisher's last uh, series of lectures um, on post-capitalist desire. And the link, obviously, there's gonna, it's kind of a theme a bit in the first few episodes of January. Obviously, it's intentional. Um, but talk to us a bit like your understanding within what you were talking about, like the self and neoliberalism, all of that. 
Um, what is, how do you understand capitalist realism for folks who, who don't know what that is? So capitalist realism is a term that was coined by Mark Fisher um, in his book by the same name. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of other people have talked about it. There are a lot of other terms that are kind of close to it. Um, but the, the core of it is sort of this, I guess I would say, naturalization or normalization of capitalism as uh, the only way or the best way that things can be done. It shows up after the fall of the Soviet Union when, you know, here was this very, very prominent example of not capitalism that you couldn't ignore. And then we saw that it failed. It was like, well, okay, I guess there is no alternative to capitalism. So that's the, um, that's the Margaret Thatcher quote, right? Is that there is no alternative. Um, so it's got, it's got this very pessimistic dimension to it because it's not so much divine, it's not so much defined through positivity as negativity. It's like, well, we can't do any of these other things, so we're stuck with capitalism. Um, and the best thing you can do is accept it, make the best of it, be the most productive self as enterprise that you can, try to get ahead, be responsible for yourself and your family. Um, but yeah, it's this very like pessimistic kind of cynical view of the world. I hear it so much. I hear so many people say like, you know, I don't like capitalism, but I don't know what else there could be. It seems like the best thing we've got. Or you might hear someone say, well, capitalism and communism are both bad, uh, but therefore I'm just going to stick with the status quo. So it doesn't require you to like, uh, positively buy in to, uh, the theories of capitalism. You don't have to like think that it's correct, that it's the best way, so much as you have to just accept it. Yeah. Um, you have to believe and... that there is no alternative. Quite li- like it is. Yeah. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but like it is. It is like the other side of obviously Margaret Thatcher's thing is that she would also say, uh, she said once like there's no such thing as society, right? Like that's because it's the natural outcome in many ways. If there is no alternative to this economic phenomena whatever political economic phenomena that's all about individual individuals but also individualization in the sense that things we are we're no longer a community we're no longer a society we don't belong to something else other than maybe ourselves and for conservatives uh, at best maybe your family although the family ends up being kind of an extension of the self in this very patriarchal way then you know it, it kind of it's a logical conclusion of of that of that um of that logic right like of that philosophy yeah Totally. That's something that's really interesting to me about um, neoliberal theory or philosophy. Uh, it's again, it's it's this normalization. Um, when so so when you say that there is no such thing as society, um, it's all individuals. You know, some theorists took that took that very seriously, and there's this whole neoliberal project that is investigating and explaining the world and and explaining society by breaking down the concept of society and trying to explain everything in terms of individual behavior, in terms of self-interest. You get um, theorists like Gary Becker um, in his like acceptance of the Nobel Prize in economics. He talks about how altruism can be explained as a selfish individualist behavior. It's really interesting. He's like, well, you know, parents 
might be seen as selfless for like raising their kids, doing everything for their kids, but they're actually just investing in their kids so that their kids will be productive in the future and then provide back for the parents. Like it's a return on investment sort of thing. So the the realm of the social and the moral and the political gets totally collapsed down into individual economic behaviors and the aggregate of those behaviors. And so capitalist realism has this like, I guess, scientific um, economic dimension to it, or I guess I should say scientistic, not scientific, right? It's this sort of like valorization of science um, without, without the sort of critical reflection of, well, are these economic theories really the best way to understand people? We, we just sort of take it for granted that, yeah, okay, there are markets and individuals. That is all there is. So we might as well just do the best we can within that rather than actually considering what other theories could be used to understand the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one, I think the term capitalist realism is so useful because it allows you to understand that when one says, you know, that let's, let's put it this way. Often when you can have, you can imagine the scenario as, you know, I think lots of folks would have had it. I've certainly had it. Well, like I talk about alternatives to capitalism and whatnot. The person on like the opposite side of that debate, like imagine a kind of a straw man figure here, whatever, but isn't they don't necessarily disagree with my intentions, maybe, or they don't say that, yeah, maybe, you know, whatnot. But you know, you gotta be realistic about things. Like they, they position themselves as the realists, like quite literally the realists, and you're the idealists, and that binary obviously is is I think part of the problem, but let, let's take it as such. The realists, quote-unquote, in this framework believe in this thing called homo economicus, i.e., like, again, this pre-neoliberalism, even classical liberalism, as you mentioned, like, you know, uh, the irrational person, kind of, that person was imagined as a man, uh, not coincidentally, obviously, you know, irrational person who is able to, you know, rationally think about X, Y, and Z, and through the magic of the invisible hand of the market, uh, supply and demand. So obviously you want this or X amount of people want this. Therefore, there's going to be some kind of supply to meet that demand. Now, I think many folks by now understand that that's not quite as simple as that. And I think more recently, especially with social media, it's become a bit more easy to to understand, I think, that the desire, because part of the assumption of the rational person is that the desire that you have is your own. You know, okay, maybe maybe advertisers can nudge you in a certain direction but this is still your own decision right like that's part of the of the myth that's part of the idea and because we think in this uh or at least i think the part of it is a bit of a natural i don't know natural but in in understandable let's put it this way we don't want to think we don't want to believe that we're this easily influenceable right like we we're still this advertising doesn't affect me that much, right? Or if I if I do buy it after watching it, it's actually because I really wanted to do so, you know? We don't want to believe that we're that malleable as as selves, as, as individuals and whatnot. And I'm not saying that, you know, this isn't a conspiracy. This is not rocket science. This isn't like, oh, actually, those very smart people behind closed doors are just making you believe that you want to buy this Adidas, whatever. It's, it's not like that. It's more that the... <laughs> I trapped myself now because I said it's not that and now I have to say what it is. <laughs> Shit. But I mean, part of what it is, is this idea that we live in a certain world and that this world has very specific rules and regulations and a certain logic to it. And you may not like it, but if you don't like it, well, you're just not, you're being an idealist. You're just not being realistic. 
you're not participating in the world, you're not doing your part, you know, etc., etc. And then you can take this to different conclusions when you start from, from sort of this assumption. And what I find interesting in like your project, uh, I think what I'm trying to do as well, what so many folks these days, which is very interesting and very nice, and I hope more of them start popping up, thinking about these actual alternatives and not just in a, again, using that binary before in this quote unquote idealistic way, but quite literally thinking like very concretely, what, why can, how can we have this better model, this better society, this better what have you, in this pre prefigurative way, which is one of the unofficial themes of 2023 on this podcast, like prefigurative <laughs> politics, acting or like having a politics today based on this ideal, right, based on this thing. So talk to us a bit about that, because I know you're kind of thinking along the same line, like we had this chat uh, prior to, we had like a Gmail chat before to, before like uh, recording. And where do you see the sort of the link between that impulse and, and Solarpunk, right, with the title of uh, Solarpunk now, the title of your podcast? Sure, yeah. Um, I also just wanted to mention real quick, um, you know, uh, how you, you were saying you were trapped in a corner of like, well, it's not that there are people behind closed doors just manipulating you. Um, you you're, I mean, you're totally right. There is never just that direct link of like, we're being mindlessly controlled. We're all sheep. Like, that's only part of the truth. Um, but there is a history of a very concerted, a very concerted effort of psychological science influencing PR firms and advertising and industries like the happiness industry, um, psychiatry, even we don't need to get too much into that. That's complicated. Um, but that's more my personal beef. But, you know, there, there are industries out there whose goal it is to manipulate consumers because there is this understanding of the consumer um, as so we, we, the focus is on the choice at the margin. So that's the moment you're at the store, you're deciding, should I buy this brand of juice? Should I buy this brand of juice? Should I buy no juice? That's, you have a choice to make, which one will improve your uh, utility, which one. In, in that moment, you are, you're imagined by economists as like kind of a passive input and output system. It's very behaviorist, very physicalist. It's not about your free will in that moment. So debating about whether we have free will in those situations is a whole other story, but you know, there are industries and fields of research that understand you and try to operate on you as such. So I just wanted to make a note of that. The advertising industry is very powerful, has gotten a lot of resources over the years. It's also only like a hundred years old or a couple hundred, depending upon where you want to put the start date. We lived most of our lives as, as a species, as humanity with nothing like the advertising industry that we have today. And we somehow, we take it for granted as like central to our experience, but. Um, before you, before you so, continue on the, I, <laughs> yeah. you, you had a tangent, so I can have one too. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm joking, but the, you know, there are campaigns around the world. I know there's one here in Geneva where I live. Uh, of having a no advertising outside um, policy, like, you know, those billboards and, and that sort of thing. And I find it very interesting uh, for the reasons that we're talking about now, that it's not like more popular than it is, right? Like, I think I think eventually 
once they kind of get enough votes, enough momentum, enough what have you, probably it will happen. It's, it has already happened in some cities. I, I'm spacing out on some names, but I know that it does exist in some cities around the world. But it's interesting that most of us have grown so used to them of seeing this ad, you know, growing up, I remember seeing like Marlboro ads in Lebanon before those were kind of phased out for obvious reasons. But um, we're sort of very used to it. It's almost like if this doesn't happen, how am I going to find out how, where to do this X, Y, and Z, or where to buy this product or where to, you know, subscribe to this, what, what have you. And I think, I think it's, I won't go too much into it, but I think it's interesting to wonder kind of like as a thinking exercises to listeners, like, why is it difficult to even picture getting out of your house, walking to or taking the bus or driving or whatever towards work or towards, I don't know, dropping off your kids or whatever, whatever, whatever you do on a daily basis, whatever that that activity looks like and not being able to not picture those billboards? Because I think that's that's a very interesting thing thought experiment. I've tried to do it and I, I genuinely have difficulties picturing the neighborhood I live in without those billboards. But yeah, sorry. Totally. No, I think I think that's actually a great segue into Solarpunk. Um what what I like about Solarpunk is it asks a lot of questions like that. Like why why not just imagine a world that does have X or doesn't have Y? Why do we consider why do we take all these things that are very um very just not arbitrary but like they're historical artifacts it's we just we happen to live in a world with advertising but it's perfectly reasonable to imagine a world that didn't have advertising because for a very very long time we did not have advertising and what would it look like to make a conscious uh return or transition to a world that either doesn't have it or has a lot more limits on it solarpunk is a a speculative uh, tradition or genre. It seems like a very direct confrontation to capitalist realism because pretty much every solar punk story challenges something that we take for granted. It's, I, I like to imagine capitalist realism as sort of like this, uh, like a, like a dome, like maybe think of like a snow globe. We're all living inside this snow globe. That's got this artificial ceiling. We can't, see out past it or at least it obscures our vision a lot but you know that dome is constructed it's constructed by neoliberal ideology and all of these pressures that we face from like the PR industry and advertising and it's so important that we have tools that that challenge that artificially limited horizon that break through the glass, punch a hole in it, realize there's something way more beautiful on the other side, or at least that the outside is way bigger than we've ever thought about. We just assume that the horizon of possibility is so much narrower than it really is. I've been reading a lot of, um, a lot of work by this anthropologist, David Graeber. I've mentioned him on the podcast. I quoted him in like the first three episodes or something like that. Graeber co-wrote this book with David Wengro, um, an anth- anthropologist. No, sorry. Uh, Wengro is an archaeologist. Graeber was an anthropologist. Um, and they go through and it's a it's a really, really uh, bold and loft- lofty goals in mind um it's it's this really bold project to basically reimagine human history we have this very 
narrow understanding of human history that's sort of this like determinist progression from like a little primitive tribe to like villages and then we start farming wheat and then cities appear and then states show up and it's like this very like straightforward progression um but they go back and actually look at the archaeological evidence and actually look at how societies today have drastically different ways of organizing themselves and they say like all of these these narratives they're kind of just bs like this is not there's there's no scientific evidence backing up this this direct progression or this claim that like without um nation states as we understand them we just descend into this like this chaos and lawlessness um he spends a lot of time talking about the work of Thomas Hobbes um, and his sort of like war of all against all and how that was totally just a thought experiment and not actually supposed to be any sort of theory about how we used to behave. Um, anyway, it's a great, it's a great book. Uh, if you're interested in this sort of solar punk mission of, of blowing up these ideas that we take for granted, showing how arbitrary they actually are, um, looking at how many different trends there are in society and culture and how we could just choose to work on different trends of like cooperation and ecological harmony rather than accepting that competitiveness and selfishness are the only aspects of human nature that we can draw on. Mm -hmm. So just today, as it happened, I was listening to the podcast, a podcast on, I think, the BBC on Kropotkin, like his life and whatever. Mm. And one aspect that I didn't know, I, like, I knew he was like, I don't know what his actual, I think he was a geographer, like he was, he was a scientist of some sort. And he um, obviously wrote the book on uh, mutual aid. I think the, one of the, I think he was one of the first to use that specific term. And he was, I think the title of the book is something along the lines of like mutual aid, a factor in evolution, right? That was a conscious reply in some sense. Like he, was, he wanted to be in, in conversation with the, at the time, the dominant Darwinist, especially social Darwinist, which is different than like Darwin himself, but whatever, the distinction doesn't really matter here which had that imaginary, which I think still exists to, to a large extent today, of, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Thomas Huxley, who was kind of dubbed uh, Darwin's bulldog because he was the one who was, like, very aggressively pushing for that. And again, there's a nuance here between evolution as it is understood in biology and then social Darwinism as it is understood politically, economically, etc. Those are two different things, and people tend to confuse the two. But Huxley's entire thing is that life and the natural world... Uh, which he then extrapolated from this belief into the human world was I forgot the par the the sentence something like nasty brutish and short something along those lines and so as it happened Kropotkin was in London at the time when this was kind of uh, he was in exile obviously from from uh, then Imperial Russia Tsarist Russia and he wanted he wanted to talk about that and you know respond to that and there was a lot of he sent a lot of correspondences to Huxley but that as far as we know were never um, answered. And so the reason why I bring this up is that this idea of Kropotkin, and he's not the only one, to be very clear, uh, like he just wrote a book about it uh, at the time, you know, but um, this idea that actually mutual aid, like quite literally helping each other, cooperating, uh, communicating, even not just within the same species, but through different species, this is something that not so not that long ago, and it's still very much an ongoing thing. We're discovering that, for example, trees actually communicate with one another through those very weird, like, 
mushroom rhizomic connections and networks that I'm, I'm barely understanding all of this like i'm really slowly getting into it but all these interesting you know people i think can just look it up these days there's a book i think called the interesting life of trees or something along those lines that gets in, into all of this and what's very obviously interesting is that if we think of a lot of like indigenous politics indigenous knowledge this kind of is taken for granted and so one of my kind of um light bulb moments if you want is that if there was this entire worldview and i don't want to romanticize it too much like there are issues in any society you know and so on but it is a very distinctive thing that in the sort of rational man again this is a very gender thing in the cartesian sense and especially after you know social darwinism which then kind of again all of this ended up complementing um whether it's post-world war ii capitalism whether it's neoliberalism especially and i think these the Again, I don't want to pick. I don't want. I'm. I'm simplifying just for the. And I also I confuse myself. Like just for the for the purpose of this conversation, obviously. But it is something. There's something to be said that today, we think of Homo economicus, of the myth of the the rational man, the the you know the market, whatever, as maybe not nice, not you know fun, maybe not even the best, but the only, as we said, right, like the only thing that is realistic, quote unquote. And if we think of these different structures, like if, if we're being scientific, if we're applying the method of science and being realistic, not quote-unquote realistic, but actually realistic, like being rational, let's put it that way, then we have to take in all sorts of data. We have to take in all sorts of information from all sorts of different maybe communities, maybe even the natural world. Like we just need to be objective. Again, I'm using all of this kind of in quotation. And so we have to also take into account the communities and human and non-human that actually do cooperate. And what are they doing that works? Maybe they're doing some things that don't work. Like let's take in all of that data. Let's take in all of that information. And I think there's something to be said. And this is obviously the, the uh, part of what we're talking about that we don't take into we don't take as much that sort of data because in some sense it's inconvenient like if you t if you really are learning about how trees communicate and how there is this rhizomic which i probably pronouncing wrongly i don't doesn't matter but this network between them and how they're literally communicating and exchanging carbon and just and the fungi kind of take like two percent of some of that and oh, man it's so complicated Again, I'm barely understanding all of this. I probably butchered it, but that's kind of the gist of some of it. And then you take this as part, of, if you internalize this in some sense, as like, this is actually also realistic. Well, then you start understanding, I think, that what you have been referring to as realism, as, you know, I'm just being realistic here, is actually a very specific type of belief. And that, that's what Mark Fisher was talking about, obviously, as capitalist realism. So I hope any of the what I just said made sense. <laughs> Oh, totally. Yeah. Good. <laughs> the fact the fact that um when you when you have a theory that human nature is inherently competitive, uh which I, I would say that's the dominant theory of human nature in at least in this western neoliberal sort of cultural zone that, you know, I've I've only lived in the US, I've never been outside of it. Um <laughs> So when you when you have this theory that human nature is competitive, any evidence to the contrary, any evidence of humans cooperating is the exception to the norm. That's like that's data that doesn't fit in the model. And for and we've kept, you know, um, I'm really interested in like the philosophy of science, how these theories are formed and how they change and how they're challenged. Um, and we've 
we've been at a point for the last several decades, I guess, where this theory of humans as homo economicus, as acting in self-interest, we keep trying to modify that theory and like fix it and 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 tidy it up and add new features. Like it's it's got a, it's got its mind, it's got its psychology now. We've just kind of like added things onto it. And even making and this even theory trying, sorry, like even try and change the world to fit that theory. Mm. <laughs> like just if right, the theory yeah. doesn't work, we need to fix absolutely everything else to make sure that the theory works. Absolutely. Like w- everything else at the expense of preserving the theory. When we could also very easily have a theory of human nature as inherently cooperative or that co- cooperation and competition are both these evolutionary trends. Um, so like you said, uh, Kropotkin's work in this area is like super important. This like foundational investigation into like, like challenging the assumption that evolution is just a matter of competition. Like cooperation, mutual aid are also a central part of it. Um, and Murray Bookchin's work in social ecology uh, expands on that. A, a foundational aspect of Bookchin's naturalism is that there are trends in our evolutionary history or natural history that are cooperative, that are about mutual aid and freedom and and making free choices. Um, and I think I think it is high time we we have uh, what like uh, philosophers of science would call a paradigm shift. We need to look at some new theories and see if there's one that better fits the data instead of continuing to just like Frankenstein on this like very long dead zombified Homo economicus. Yeah. Uh, I, I live in the city where Frankenstein was written, which is the only claim to fame of the city, I think, <laughs> other than the UN is here. <laughs> but anyway, no, I, I obviously completely agree. And I, f- funny segue, but like speaking of Frankenstein, the idea of of imaginaries, right? Like this is going to be a theme that's going to be uh, even like, I'm going to repeat it a number of times and kind of explore different aspects of it throughout throughout 2023 and prob- probably beyond it, but I'm focusing on this year for now. Again, we're not in 2023, but this is the magic of podcasting. One of the things that I found super interesting, and you know, I've been kind of hampering on this point now for, for a few months, if not a, a year or so, is that it is super easy for us to imagine the end of the world. Like in terms of literally just making that mental effort and that's because for the most part, we're not thinking of anything original. Like we're just, we're borrowing or we're taking in stuff we have seen or some we've heard about, usually in the form of movies, maybe some series, maybe, you know, some books, or maybe in the way of just talking about certain things. This is something that is uh, normal. And in, in, I mean, none of this is none of what, normal is such a contentious term. I don't know what other term to use. Normalize, maybe let's put it that way. It's it's normalized to think of of the end of the world. You know, again, that that often used code of like it's easier to and to to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what the the work that we should be doing is making it harder <laughs> to imagine the end of the world than then to let's just making it easier to imagine the end of capitalism. Quite quite simply that. Because the end of the world means the end of capitalism. That's kind of the weird thing about this this lack of imaginary is that we, we kind of think that well we can continue doing capitalism even if capitalism is leading us towards the end of the world. And it's so there is a mental 
trap there. There's something quite literally in how we're thinking. And again, for listeners, I think folks know this by now. Whenever we explore one aspect of something in depth, we will leave out certain other things. I think that's just the nature of a conversation. So I'm not saying, oh, like listener who is, I don't know, on your way to work now or whatever, like just open up your mind. Like, fuck that. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying it's part of the problem. It's part of the tools. If we want to imagine different um, structure, we need to quite literally be able to imagine. Kind of, it's a repetitive thing. And that is an action, like, or that is a that is a skill, right? That is a muscle in some sense. That, in the same way as I said, that it's very easy to imagine the end of the world. But maybe it shouldn't be that easy, but it is easy because that muscle has been just like developed, you know, insaturated at this point, right? It's just such an easy thing to do. But why is it difficult to imagine? If I'm picturing an episode of Star Trek, and I talk about Star Trek a bit, the fourth episode of this month actually again, January 2023, will be with uh, Jesse Gender, who has this uh, YouTube channel on on science fiction, LGBT issues, autism, and other stuff. But specifically, we spoke about futurisms. And it's going to come out after this episode, if I have my timeline correct. Um, and w- one of the things I like about Star Trek, or other sci-fi, like futuristic stuff, is I picture, my, I picture that world that they're portraying. Because usually, if it's like good sci-fi... It, it's operating on a certain logic, right? It's saying that there is a timeline, this happened in the kind of the universe of Star Trek, the 21st century. So our current century was kind of an ugly one. But then after that, there was like World War Three and whatever. And then after that, kind of humanity got its shit together. There's no money. There are replicators that just create food out of, you know, whatever, whatever the specifics are. But even in that world, they have, you know, adventures and things happen and they meet some species or... Like stuff happens, human things happen and non-human things as well, because in that world there are like aliens and whatnot. But it's not fantastical in the sense that it's it's sort of within the logic of the universe, it's rooted in something that is quote unquote logical. And so if it if we can imagine something like that, we imagine a world, you know, they go on this planet or this happens or whatever. What I find interesting is as a kind of again training that muscle, so to speak, exercising that that imagine it, you know, uh, all of that is picturing myself in that or picturing society in general or the world as we know it as that and taking that for granted like this is the new realism this is what in that world this is what it means to be quote-unquote realistic what are even the boundaries within that logic and you know it's 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 an it's a you know it's an it's an exercise in imagination it doesn't it won't necessarily change your day-to-day necessarily but it allows me in any case to see the daily life that I'm going through and the logics of the society and societies in which I live because I've moved through many countries now through that lens of, well, they're operating under a certain logic. That logic needs to be questioned. You know, I'm kind of simplifying, obviously, but and it allows me to have that because you're you're escaping into a world and then you're coming back to your world, you know, so to speak. Um, And then you are able to question your world slightly better at least if you're kind of doing you can also just watch it because it's fun but you know if you're kind of doing that exercise and so that that's what i find very interesting about and this is slight awkward segue but i want to talk a bit about hauntology and hauntings and so on but i I, i'll let you kind of respond think through what i just said or what if you wanted to share something because i'm kind of hogging up the space here uh no that was all really great i i don't have much to add i mean that's what i like so much about solar punk uh you know, as as a speculative genre, it looks at things that are happening now and extends them into the future. Um, but there's no reason that the only future 
that we can write about is like, you know, more ecological destruction, more capitalism, more advertising. Like we don't have to just imagine this kind of like cyberpunk future, even if that might be kind of like in cultural vogue right now. Um, but Solarpunk says, well, actually, there's all these communities who are getting together and like working on permaculture and uh, reappropriating uh, private spaces for public use. Um, all these things are happening in our world, even if we don't have so much, even if we don't have as many conversations or stories about them. And that's why I think it's really great that we have a genre that's explicitly writing stories about those things or uh, artistically describing those things. Yeah, I just just hope, I have a feeling it will happen if hopefully I'm not just being naive, but I have a feeling that cyberpunk is reaching a sort of a certain saturation, let's put it that way. I personally got a bit bored of uh, cyberpunk aesthetics and part of it was fun growing up, you know, I, I did enjoy watching something, but just the aesthetics of it and the underlying logic that, I forgot, I think it was William Gibson, but I might get the name wrong, who said like c- cyberpunk is high-tech high and low-life, essentially. And obviously with, with solarpunk, and I've mentioned this a few times already, but with solarpunk is high-life, so to speak. And tech, it's a question mark in the sense that tech can be high-tech, can be low-tech, can be no-tech, depending on what the context requires, right? The point is that there are human needs and there are also non-human needs. And in order to meet them, we may use technology or we can use technology and technology can facilitate that. But it's repurposed to be in the service of that, essentially. And so the kind of awkward segue in <laughs> talking about hauntings and hauntology and all of that is that it's it's sort of the other the flip side of talking about imaginaries because i'll kind of give a bit of background for if someone hasn't listened because i think i talked about it in the first episode the one with andre a bit but if if they haven't listened i'll quickly say it again so hauntology sort of started or at least was popularized by derrida in french it sounds the same thing to talk about ontology and uh, ontology it sounds the same thing it's it's a pun and the idea is that he was sort of responding to the famous declaration of the end of history by fukuyama in like 91 or 92 whenever he published it and derrida published his thing in 93 or something and he was like, so Fukuyama said that at the end of history, i.e. the Soviet Union collapse, i.e. communism, quote unquote, or whatever the Soviet model of that was, uh, failed. And, you know, I think I would obviously agree with that. The Soviet Union was a kind of a disaster. But that failed. That wasn't good. That wasn't a good model. Therefore, the reason why the West triumph, again, using the terminology of, of uh, Fukuyama, is that they have a superior model, right? Like this whole uh, liberalism meets capitalism, all of that. And Derrida was sort of saying that in declaring that Marxism the uh, dead, because again, in that context of the early 90s, you've actually created a ghost. You've created a specter. And his, his book was called Specters of Marx. And because now communism is this thing that haunts, again, I'm using Derrida, I'm not saying this what I hear, but this uh, ha- communism haunts capitalism, essentially. Okay, that's sort of some of the background. What Mark Fisher, I think, did uh, very interestingly is he wasn't just talking about the, these hauntings from the past, right? The past, the Soviet past or whatever, but hauntings from the future, i.e. the hauntings of the future that never came to pass. And communism is one of them. In the context of Lebanon, uh, one of my, the chapters of my PhD actually is on, um, I'm not going to get too much into it, but essentially these uh, visions of the future that a lot of folks had in the 60s and especially in the 70s that never came to pass, but that the people that had them, uh, most of them still exist today. You know, they still live today. So what is their present like? Because their present 
it doesn't look like the future that they sort of imagined, right? And this can be um, communism, it can be pan-Arabism in the case of Lebanon, it can be like other isms, pan-Islamism to a certain extent with some, with some folks and so on. And that, that did not come to pass, obviously. It doesn't exist in, in the way they pictured it. And so where is that? You know, where is that future? Where does it exist? And the idea is that it's a haunting. Now, haunting, it's easy to imagine it as a little ghost because it just makes it easier to talk about it and think through it. And I think it's nice to have these mnemonic aids anyway. But obviously, it's, it's, it's more like it's a philosoph philosophical concept. And it's one which I do think has an impact on, quote unquote, the real world, i.e. like it does actually affect how we go about our lives. Because if we think of them as ghosts and whatnot, it can help explain why it's so difficult to imagine alternatives, because those are the only alternatives that we think could have existed. And they're dead, you know, they're haunting us, they're ghosts, they're specters and phantoms and whatever. And we don't want that, obviously, because they're dead and therefore they've lost and so on. And so we stick with our current uh, model, our current system. And so the point isn't to say, let's bring back those ghosts and let's, let's, uh, you know, let's do a bit of uh, uh, state Soviet communism or a bit of pan-Islam, whatever. That's not the point, obviously. They've, they've collapsed, they've failed, whatever. The point isn't to just go to the past. The point is to ask, well, if they failed, does that, doesn't that also mean somehow that the thing that we are currently living in can also fail, you know, might also fail. Because a lot of the bureaucrats of the Soviet Union never quite imagined that this amazing thing that lasted almost a century in whatever would actually collapse the way it did, but it did. And that certainty, that realism, you know, be re being realistic in the Soviet sense, well, did not save the Soviet Union. So what, what tells us today, given that we know the limits of capitalism and we know the damages that it's, have, it's having, we, we literally know the impacts that it's having on the earth, which has finite resources and whatnot. Why are we so convinced, or at least let's put it differently, why is it so difficult to put a stop to that? Okay, I'm not talking at the structural reasons, because there are those. I'm talking even like on a, on a mental, in a mental way, like quite literally thinking of these alternatives. Okay, this was a much longer introduction than I thought it would be. But oh. talk to us about ghosts, <laughs> at least how, how you oh think about gosh. them. Oh, my gosh. There are so many directions I want to go yeah. here. Oh, my God. I don't know where to start. Um, Take a random one. Okay. I'm just <laughs> I'm going to try to go, like, sort of chronologically through what you said. Um, so something that's really interesting to me about cyberpunk is... Uh, it's very retro futurist yeah. at this point. Like it, it seemed kind of, I don't know, fresh and new when William Gibson started writing, when like Neuromancer came out and whatever. Um, but if you look at the aesthetics of cyberpunk, there's like this fear and fascination with Japan. Japan is like the big other in this in this imagined world, and that comes out of World War II. That's like very, uh, that's it's it's a imagined future of the past. It's a different time. People had different concerns. There was this different sort of like xenophobic uh, fear going on. And it's interesting to me to look at uh, people who would call themselves futurists today. Um, I think Elon Musk is a good example. I think he's more of a cyberpunk. Um, there's a fascinating interview. This is a total tangent. There's a fascinating interview that Werner Herzog has in one of his films uh, with Elon Musk. And Musk is saying, you know, I think I think the world, essentially the gist of it is the world is going to go to shit. I'm building these rockets to Mars because I think like we're on a really 
bad track here. The world's going to a very dark place. I have nightmares at night. I can't think of how to make it better. So he has this very like fantastical idea of the future that's very disconnected from our present situation. It's very disconnected from what scientists are saying would actually lead to a safer, better, healthier future. It's it's the past haunting present conceptions of the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the time is all out of joint. <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's um, why I find hauntology and ghosts and hauntings and traces, whatever you want to call them, like such a powerful conceptual tool. It, it seems like a much more comprehensive way to think about our experience of time. We, we like to think of time as this simplified linear progression, but that's really, that's not how we experience it. I mean, you know, we have mental formations that we can have things like trauma or like anxiety, the way that we think about and feel and experience time is not linear. It's not chronological. It is being haunted by the past, being haunted by the future. Um, I, I really like Mark Fisher's work in this area because he, so he does a lot of like cultural analysis, looking at films, looking at texts, And what's really important about that is he shows kind of like a a cultural process that's happening alongside this more sort of political economic neoliberal process we were talking about. There's a cultural element to capitalist realism. It's in our literature. It's in our films. Um, he, He talks a lot about the like repackaging of existing things and like nothing, nothing truly new is being created. We're seeing repackaged forms of the 70s, 80s. We're seeing these trends just kind of repeat like, okay, now it's time for bell bottoms. Now it's time for skinny jeans again. Like we just keep going in this cycle. I've, I've noticed this of... in, in a lot of, uh, even like in podcasts, there's, there's, I've described like a good chunk of podcasts. I'm talking about Anglophone US centric podcasts that are um, essentially packaging millennial nostalgia. Uh, you know, to, for lack of a better, you know, it's it's often rewatching something that was like popular in the '90s or in the early '20s, and now you can rewatch it with your whatever favorite cast member and whatever, and it's you know episode by episode reliving those experiences or whatever it is. Or it's like you know, there's I, I I'm just gonna single it out just because I found it funny. I don't know anything about that podcast. It's pro- it might be super good. I have no idea, but it it was like what happened in 1992, and that was the name of the podcast. And it was like why. In music like musically that year was so like revolutionary or whatever it is and i did not buy the premise like when when i when i listened to the the promo you know it's like no this is actually just because there is there is enough content to talk about that specific year but it's just very interesting that we're doing that again i'm not saying no no judgments if folks are really going through no st- whatever like that's a normal thing but it's very interesting that yes there is a sense that it's almost like we've we've exhausted uh, creative ideas, you know, we've, we've exhausted the new and now we're kind of repackaging to simplify a bit, but like we're repackaging all of these things. Yeah. Sorry. No, that was, that was great. Um, yeah, I, I wrote a bunch of just like questions and thoughts on hauntology, like some things to ask you. I just, I Please. don't know how much time we have left, we, but I'd love have, to just get into matter. it some more. Time does not, as we just okay. said, time is not a thing. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> great. Yeah. So, um, so just in like the, the reading I was doing on hauntology, it seems like 
a an, an important tool for understanding the sort of like postmodern world we find ourselves in. I think maybe people have a lot of misconceptions about postmodernism and what it is. I see it. So I come from a literature background. I see it as mostly something descriptive. It's reading the world as a text. Um, and it's sort of, we've, we've moved away from like a, a modernist vision of society or a positive vision for, for where we're going, what the world could be. It's, it's like kind of this distrust of the future almost where we're averted of, there's this aversion to, to telos, to teleology, to like our goals or where we're going. Um, So you wind up in culture, just seeing these kind of like repackaged forms that are all kind of, um, it's it's the same it's the same trend we see in technological innovation. Uh, David Graeber again has this really great essay. I think it's called on on flying cars and the de- declining rate of profit or something like that. Um, so he asked the question that that you were asking just a moment ago, like why don't we have flying cars? Why don't we have all these fantastic visions of the future? And a lot of it is because in technology, the innovations that we're getting aren't fundamentally new. They're just repackagings or combinations of existing forms so there's this sense of like timelessness and just this extending present that never actually takes us into the future so something else that um comes up in in conversations about temporality is this idea of like the long or protracted present i was wondering how you see that in relation to the i was wondering how you see that in relation to hauntology it, it's it's sort of it's it's like it's cousin. I mean, it's it's both work at the same. So the protracted now is one of the terms I think it got, a Lebanese uh, theorist called Walid Raad used, but it's very similar to like the ontological now, which I think Mark Fisher himself used. And the idea is just that the present is extended, like we are stuck in the present, and it's a very different type of being of being in the present because you can think of oh, you know, I'm meditating and I'm being in the now. That's not what we're talking about. It's literally like you're in, in this because the past is sort of a blurry thing. In let's, I'm kind of using these metaphors. Uh, I'm trying to kind of use mnemonic aids for even listeners if that helps. I mean, it helps me. But so that's what the past is. It's kind of it's it's a question mark in many ways. And the pre- and the future is impossible. Like the future cannot be conceptualized. It's n- simply not something that can be conceptualized. And what ends up happening is that what we think of as the future ends up actually being a repackaging in many ways. And this is not to say, like, just to be very nuanced here or very clear, it's not to say that one cannot have original ideas or that innovations do not exist or whatever. That's not the point. The The argument is more that even those original ideas, even those innovations, even this newness, this thing that is created or is taught, you know, from scratch or whatever, whatever it may be, even all of that ends up actually having to conform in one way or another to a pre-existing pattern or to... You know, I don't know, something very simple is that you have an idea, a project idea or whatever it is, uh, and you, you think, you know, it can be revolutionary or whatever. And I'm not, to, please, I'm not talking about startup. I, you know, even even when we talk, I have to f- remember that there are these existing things that, be, that that can come to people's minds. And so when I'm talking about, like, quite literally, you, you, you want to explore something. You want to discover something new, whatever it is. In order to do so, you need to think of how to get there, right? And so you need to think of the resources that you need. Maybe if you're already rich, I mean, you're lucky. If you're not, you need to 
find money somehow. So maybe you work for a few years or maybe you find a loan from the bank or whatever it is. And all of that already affects the project itself or the idea itself. It's not like, you know, it's not that in Star Trek part of the easiness of that is that for the most part, they can just explore something because whatever technological requirement is needed to do so has already been invented, like simplifying. But so, so they're able to have these what you might think of as thought experiments, but actually just have them on the screen and, and imagine them in that sense. So the anyway, the protracted now is the is the inability to do that is, is or at least is the resulting temporality from the inability to do that. Uh, and it's what we see today, but I think to some extent it's what we've seen for some time now. At the very least, like it's very difficult to have a concrete timeline and that will depend on where you live. And maybe this doesn't affect you and you don't live in it and that's fantastic for you. But for most folks, I think these days, it's like roughly it started before me and you were born, I think, like 70s, 80s, and kind of peaked or has been peaking for some time now. Whether it collapses, whether it changes, I have no idea obviously. And part of why I have no idea is that it's difficult to imagine the future. So we're going to, we go back to the, to the initial problem in many ways. Yeah. So, so why is it, <laughs> why is it so difficult? What's standing in the way? I wanted to do like, like a seance and bring these ghosts out. <laughs> what, what ghosts are you seeing? <laughs> I think, I think of very concrete things sometimes. Like I, I really think of what does it take or why is it that I go to a family lunch or I am sitting at a cafe and starting chatting with the old lady next to me, what, whatever these situations may be. What stops me, uh, and you know, this is a me thing, but I may, I'm just having a thought experiment here. What stops me from talking to that person or that relative or whatever it is about completely different worlds, right? Like wh what is this thing that prevents me? And I think it has to do with capitalist realism in the sense that I actually feel in many ways that like I can be talking to that person. Maybe that person says, well, actually, that sounds like a nice idea, you know, whatever it is. But then the the link between, oh, this is a nice idea. It would be nice and whatnot. But, oh, this can actually be done. We can actually do this today. That link is sort of severed. And the why, I mean, in many ways, it's, it's a consequence of learned helplessness. Uh, the fact that it is actually difficult to think of anything new anyway, when you're used to something like just again, that that mental process itself is not an easy thing to do, at least not definitely not an easy thing for me to do. And that even when you when one imagines like all of those, uh, let me put it this way, like, I think if there is a lot of it, if there are a lot of solo punk stories, and it becomes normalized as an imaginary in the same way that cyberpunk is normalized and imaginary, I think the conversation would be very different. Let's put it that way. So mm -hmm. maybe we're just chatting at sort of the, you know, the, the beginning of something, if we're hoping that this trend, and I, I have, I have some, I think we can have some reason to believe that it will continue to kind of expand and expand and expand as an imaginary, largely because it's responding to an actual need. Like it's not a, it's not just like we're just having fun for the sake of it, but we're actually like the thing that differentiates solar punk, especially from, I think, from a lot of other genres, if not most other genres, is that for the most part, solar punk tries to be practical in the sense that even if you're imagining like, oh, this is my what my city would look like in 2060 or whatever. And even if you're imagining some fantastical element to it like you know you can communicate with elephants or whatever it is like some something that doesn't exist let's say in, in our current reality even if there is that element you're doing so in the hope that it can or at least a lot of the writers who write these stories are do so and are doing so in the hope that it can influence the reader's perception of our current reality 
And that's very different from, you know, I don't know, reading Lord of the Rings, which is a classical example I use because I was really into it growing up. I still kind of, you know, I'm talking and all of that. It's a nice escapism, but I don't read those stories in the kind of with the assumption that, oh, how how is this going to better my life, right? Or how is this going to not just better my life, but why, how can we model our current society and change our current society based on the ideals of those societies in Middle Earth? I don't find them as ideals, right? I don't find them as better necessarily. Maybe they're nicer and more photogenic but they're not necessarily you know something to emulate in the in the present world although aspects of them are nicer than our current world which is more about our current world than about them to be honest but um yeah <laughs> that's, that's part of it anyway one thing that we in in our chat like in our uh pre pre-recording thing you talk, i think you wrote something I, I wrote it here like getting through the depressing part is how we realize the positivity and in many ways like mm. it's sort of this uh thing of Again, using the mnemonic aid of like ghosts, you know, in at least in, in like Christian mythology and whatnot, you can exorcise those ghosts. And again, I'm just using this as shorthand, folks listening to this, you do not need to need, need that mnemonic aid necessarily. Think of whatever helps you or, you know, something that may be more uh, easier in your, you know, on your own cultural context or whatever it is. But if, if, if this helps you, then think of it this way. Like, what can we do to exercise those ghosts? Because part of, in the mythology itself, like in the, in the culture itself and whatnot, in that specific culture, is like you have to identify the ghost, maybe you have to name the ghost, and then maybe you have some counter spell or, you know, wh- whatever it is to, to exercise that ghost, right? Like, but first, you ha- it has to start with identifying it, right? Like, you have to know, you have to name it. Naming it is actually an important thing in, in that whole exorcism thing. Like, if folks think of those movies like The Exorcist, uh, if I remember well, like the exorcist literally names the devil, right, in order to exercise whatever. So that 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 idea of being able to name it, I think, helps a lot. And I think being able to understand capitalist realism as that, as like, yes, it's a realism, but realism doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean this is the realistic thing to do. In the same way that scientism is not scientific necessarily, it, aspects of it might be but in and of itself is a belief. And that belief mm-hmm. has like assumptions, has a structure, has a logic, you know, has whatever it may be. And they can be deconstructed, they can be taken apart, and we can replace them with things that we think are better. And th- that's, that's the exercise. It's a very difficult one. Like I get lost even thinking about it. But it's one that I think the more it is done and the more people do it, and the more we get, it becomes easier to do it with the aid of um, cultural stuff, like, again, series, movies, books, whatever, in the same way, to not, not to repeat myself too much, but in the same way that it's super easy for us to imagine those apocalypse, zombies, whatever, uh, quite literally, I think, I can say this with confidence, like, every single person listening to this has that in mind right now, as I'm saying so, as I'm, like, talking about, like, those apocalypses, zombies, and whatnot. I want it to be as easy to, to do, if not easier, obviously, ideally, to, to imagine those other uh, futures as being realistic. Like, again, not just a utopia where I'm just escaping into Middle Earth and the Shire and I'm enjoying myself with some hobbits, but it's, like, literally, I want this vision that I'm thinking about to feel like it's a realistic vision because that that's always been the power of cyberpunk, is that you're watching these futures mm-hmm. and they kind of feel like they may happen. They're not nice. We don't want them to happen. But it sort of feels that we're going that way. You know, Elon Musk, as you mentioned, like that that's basically, it's been internalized. And, you know, obviously it's a scary thing that, you know, one of the richest men in the world thinks that way. But that is the case. That And we know that this is actually Paul. Like he's a very good example 
of this poverty of the imagination, actually. We can make that argument. Um, but yeah, Walker's, I talk too much. Like Walker's with the, this idea of like the, the you know, the, something that's very depressing, like cyberpunk, which is obviously very depressing, but not just cyber, like the stuff that we've been talking about, these ghosts, how, how can they lead us, so to speak, or how can studying them or whatever it is actually realize the positivity that we can explore better, if that makes sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I can speak to this from personal experience. Uh, this And this kind of takes us back to the start of our conversation when we're talking about neoliberal philosophy. So that, that was the focus of my research for a while. Um, and something that you realize pretty early on when you start studying basically the philosophy that inspires the realism of the present, maybe that's, that's a good way to put it. Um, there, there's a feeling, there's a feeling in the world of ontology of the things that exist. Um, and some of those things might be like markets and participants in those markets, the self as an enterprise, personal branding, human capital, all of these things. These are these are objects that have been defined that can be entered into like economic equations that can be worked with. Um, and there's there's a sense that it's ontological, that's very foundational, uh, just sort of like neutrally describing objects. But when you when you sort of break that apart and understand it as a hauntology, as you know, the they're never fully present. It's always already absent present. That probably makes no sense, but <laughs> no, that does make sense. I, think... I do think the absent present is very, like I think it, that's the hauntological present, right? Like that's the present that we think might exist or sh maybe should have existed by now, but doesn't. So it makes sense um, if you've read Derrida. Anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't I don't know how much explaining to do for for the audience um but you know the the ghostliness of of these presences they're like they're half presences they're they're not really of our time they're kind of of the past but also not really belonging to the past either um what's what's really cool about that is you can you can start to see through them you can like pass your hand through it realize that barrier isn't really as solid as you thought and it's still there you're still looking at it it's still shapes your thinking but there is an outside to it there's a constructedness of it um so so my personal experience uh with with coming to this research um i was so back in college i was dealing with like a lot of mental health issues feeling very depressed um sort of just i guess about myself but also about the state of the world. I, I actually entered college to study ecology. Um, so, you know, I'm, I was really interested in ocean acidification, particularly, which is this horrible thing that's happening where little sea creatures can't make their shells anymore because the ocean got too acidic. Um, and that's a really, there, there's a lot of, a lot of tragedy and hopelessness and pessimism. I mean, it's all summed up in that term doomerism. I think that's, that's kind of like the zeitgeist of our, I don't know about world or generation or culture, what would be the correct category there, but it's very present. Um, and I started the, the first book I read actually um, sort of on this subject was capitalist realism. And I could not have chosen a better introduction because Mark Fisher um, also had 
personal struggles with mental illness. And in his work, including in Capitalist Realism, he talks about the the personal aspects and the political aspects of depression and how maybe we need to stop personalizing these feelings so much. And actually, there can be a lot of healing and recovery in understanding problems, not as our own personal problems, but as political ones, as constructed problems. And that was that was so important for me to hear. And it really set me on this track of, yeah, I guess like of seance, of recognizing these ghosts, of seeing how things that I felt were unchangeable, that were oppressing me, um, were actually a little a little less present, a little more absent than I thought. I can actually work to think outside of them. Um, I don't know where I'm going with no, this, I mean, that, but that, that's right. Like honestly, like I I completely identify with that, and that, that's kind of the difference between when I've been doing therapy for some time now. But I found it most helpful when the therapist was able, and that was a, a previous therapist, was able to sort of help me frame. Uh, some of my problems not just as a me thing like not just as like my internal what happened when I was nine or you know whatever like oh it's something that you can pinpoint to your specific past but maybe something that actually happened in your surroundings maybe something that you've taken in maybe you know whatever it may be and I've understood better I think and by understanding it better I've kind of regained a sense of my own agency in some in some sense that the especially anxiety at the time but also depression like I'm, I'm on antidepressant now as well they they are not just something that i have had to deal with because it's just what it is right like there, there are like concrete reasons why this happened and part of the reason why it's so difficult to overcome it or to move beyond it or whatever whatever term we want to use here why isn't there more of an emphasis as well like just to kind of stay on the specific topic on like what can be done as a group or a community or as a society or as a nation or you know however one wants to scale it up but why aren't there more things that are done let's say on that side to make this less of a recurring phenomena right and a good chunk of that reason if not the main reason i think fisher argues that way and i think i think we both agree on that uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we live in, in, in an economic system and a framework and a zeitgeist and whatever one term, paradigm, whatever, where this is simply not the priority, where even tackling anxiety and depression or whatever is basically only good insofar as it, as it makes you a more productive subject, right? As it makes you like, oh, that's not good to be depressed and whatnot because you're not working well, you're not earning a good enough salary and, you know, whatever whatever the logic in that specific, uh, you know, there are different examples there. But the underlying logic is essentially, I think, is essentially that, that ultimately the good isn't the thing, the, the good thing that can come out of this, this therapy session, whether it's group or individual or this, I don't know, medication in some cases, whatever the specifics might be. The point of the... Um, of getting better should be that it's you're getting better because this is good for you because it's good to be better <laughs> to 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 heal let's put it that I'm, i don't want to use a productivist uh, language but like to heal from something right like to go through a process of healing and so on it's it's not as efficient in the current world we live in not because of like that individual therapist necessarily although there are some shitty therapists obviously lots of them it's not it's not just like oh oh you know 
what it's not just the specifics i'm trying to be as broad as i can here it's not those specific individuals who live in that it's that usually the framework that is used is by default limiting or limited because you can't question like i can't usually if i go to the therapist and this has happened i right, to give a very concrete example and i say like yeah i'm i'm anxious and i'm depressed because i'm a migrant in switzerland and because that wasn't easy especially back when i started and because i come from a context in lebanon where like i've seen shit and i've seen i've lived through like difficult things or whatever it may be and usually like it's not like okay let's talk about that or what have you although there are some therapists who would say that it's like okay but let's discuss how this has affected you and what can you do about it to uh, not let it affect you now that's important i'm not saying that's not important or not let it destroy you. Let's put it that way. That's that's an important skill or whatever. But it's limited because it doesn't. It cannot in the tools themselves doesn't tackle the thing that caused the trauma in the first place, right? Like because it's not a societal, it's not a society-wide framework. It's an individualistic framework. So ideally, you have all of them at the same time, obviously. Uh, although I think arguably if you have all of them at the same time at some point the individualized method would not be as needed in the same way if that makes sense uh, but that that's sort of how I, I I think I've been thinking about it and that's why like therapy for me has been important but I'm getting to a point where I feel like I need something that's not just that or at the very least something that, that goes beyond that that that's just me though right no that's a great point it's it's a very nuanced point but that nuance is really important <laughs> you know it's not the problem is not therapy or medication or this like healing process. The problem is how it's implemented. That's why I think um, psychopolitics is a really critical concept to understand. Uh, these these technologies, I, I think of them as technologies, psychotherapy as a technology, um, become technologies of power. So a good example would be like like a human resources department at a company, you can go in and you can talk to someone about the problems you're experiencing, but the department is not there to make you to make you healthy. I mean, they kind of are. It's not that to they're fix not the company, there. Right? Yeah, they're they're not there for your benefit. They're there to protect the company's bottom line, and they it is. This is oversimplifying, but I mean, it is cheaper to like erase any opposition you're having on an individual level rather than restructuring the company and that's that's a great role for therapy for psychology within this very like privatized neoliberal system um is to solve problems on the most individualized personalized scale possible rather than restructuring society in a way where, you know, we're not all constantly surveilling ourselves and uh, disciplining ourselves, like, that leads to a hell of a lot of anxiety. And if we could not feel so much pressure to be productive and to, like, heal ourselves so that we can be more productive, like, if there isn't that constant demand on our psyches, I think we'd be a lot happier. But that also requires a bigger structural shift. Um I had another. But you feel like you see that oh. all of even this conversation in many ways is sort of like haunted by those those ideas and those concepts, and then that that's why I find it a very useful thing to be honest. Like it's and it just again as a mnemonic device, it's easy. It's kind of easier to think of something that is otherwise very abstract if you're able to not necessarily personify it, but like to think of it as something concrete in in one way or another. 
um, just as something that's like it's next to you. You know, it's not necessarily you, but it's affecting you in, in that sense. That's why a ghost is such an. And I think I think most people can imagine ghosts. So that that makes it useful as well. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to mention on that is um, the concept of responsabilization. I think I'm one of my book recommendations is going to be a book about this. Um, a, another critical component of neoliberal ideology is personal responsibility. And there's this idea that we are, as as the self as enterprise, we are responsible for our productivity and our happiness and our health. And these concepts all just kind of blend into each other. So you wind up with, um, like, on a very fundamental physical level, there are policies in place, um, like in the UK, this, like, return, this, um, what's it called? I I don't remember what it's called, but the idea is that um, the goal of therapy is for you to return to work. So you're provided with these um, resources as long as you're looking for jobs and as long as the the goal of your healing is to become a productive citizen again. It's like all kind of collapsed into this incentive structure and that that influences like literal policies and the landscape of society and how you navigate it. You have to interact with these things. So it totally makes sense that you're going to internalize them and think that it is your responsibility and it is your fault that you're not happy um, when really it could be something as concrete as, you know, your health benefits were just taken away because of a policy. That's not, that's not your fault, but it can feel like it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I, like, to find a way to synthesize everything we've just said, which is not going to work. So I'm going <laughs> to fail and I'm just going <laughs> to fail, but th- being able to, um, and also because just to slowly, uh, wrap up because we've been talking for about an hour and a half. Um, and uh, there should be an upper limit on podcasts I have learned. <laughs> but um, And yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to do other episodes eventually anyway. But for now, the, um, the synthesis in some sense is that, okay, there are these ghosts and they can be, um, they can be identified. Like there are actual conceptual tools that are actually, they sound fancy and difficult. And maybe at, at first they may sound intimidating. But I generally think that they are relatively approachable in the sense that they, you can, by using these mnemonics, um, shortcuts, maybe we can think of, like quite literally imagine ghosts and understand why are these ghosts still present around us. And more kind of deeply, maybe if that's the correct term, why are we still sort of stuck in thinking about and in, in not being able to think because we're stuck about futures that in, on some level we know or imaginary is alternative imagining is that we kind of know on even like on an I don't know emotional level maybe or like on, on some deep level or whatever that they shouldn't be that difficult like what is what there's this thing that happens on a scaling like when we scale things up right like when I think of mutual aid and I talk about mutual aid most folks even most folks I think listening to this can picture this working with like very close friends maybe some relatives you know like sure of course I'm not gonna you know make my sister pay if she needs something, you know, maybe I'm just going to help her out or whatever it may be. We, we, there's, it's kind of an instinctual thing almost like, okay, because it's within the paradigm in which we exist, mutual aid is acceptable if it is within certain uh, structures, right? So within certain frameworks, usually the family, but maybe like, oh, a close, your best friend, you treat that best friend like your sister or your sibling or your brother or whatever, whatever it may be, you know, that sort of thing. 
It's like, oh, that's normal. That's a good, healthy way of friendship. But like, you know, we kind of imagine that like, well, the nature of that friendship is that you can be there for one another. You can complement each other, each other's needs. Maybe maybe you have something to help that you can offer and maybe that person can offer. You know, there can be some kind of exchange, you know, mutual aid, you know, what, whatever it may be. Or doing something without necessarily the, the expectation that they have to do something in return, you know, that sort of thing. But when we scale it up, then it becomes a matter of like, that's just not realistic. Yeah, like that's not that too many things. And typically scaling anything is always by definition more complicated. But complicated does not mean uh, not feasible and it doesn't mean not realistic. Like those are two very, three very different things that we tend to actually mix up quite a lot, I think, in, in like day to day discourse. Something can be super complicated, but is actually very feasible and it might be better than something that feels simpler, but is not very good. Like it's much simpler to imagine a world where it's like a dog eat dog. You know, again, this whole nasty British short thing belief where it's all homo economicus, that's very easy to actually imagine it. But clearly, that's not a good thing that's happening. So we can imagine something that's more complicated, but can actually be more realistic, more feasible, more, you know, what have you. So that that's what I would kind of, these are my like my final thoughts or whatever. And I'll leave it up to you to sort of also like give us like some of your like kind of final reflections, at least for the purpose of this episode, like this conversation. And then continue on with like your recommendations on like the, the three books, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, that's a great summary. Uh, I think you're right. You're spot on with like, just because something is complicated doesn't mean it's not realistic. Um, I just wanted to say like studying the, the intellectual history of neoliberalism, you realize that this was a very complicated project. It is still complicated to try to maintain it. There are just so many people working on it who are involved in theorizing and policymaking. This, it might feel um, like it's a, like, it might feel like we have simple explanations um, on an everyday level, but those are really just like tiny pieces of neoliberal philosophy that we've internalized. It is not a whole comprehensive picture. It is a very complicated one, a very complicated history, and a very concerted effort on the part of philosophers and politicians and business people to implement it. And if they can do it, we could do something else. Already, <laughs> Everything takes hard work. They already imagined a future that they wanted or whatever metaphor we want to use, and it sort of happened. And obviously it didn't happen perfectly as much as like it didn't happen in the exact same way that they imagined it, but like close enough. Uh, and so there's no yeah. reason why we, you know, can't do that as well. I find it I find it weirdly inspiring in a twisted way. Like they they did establish a a new way of doing things when we needed a new way of doing things. It's just there are some very major problems with it. It's time to make another one, but but these things are possible. They happen. People change the world all the time. There, this this sense of realism, capitalist realism, that nothing is changing. Total total illusion. The world is changing all of the time. <laughs> so I guess that's that's where I would end. Uh, things are going to change no matter what, and it's up to us to to direct those changes, to come up with ideas, to organize to make the changes we want to see. Like to quote, I think Octavia Butler in the parable of the sower, like the only, the only constant is change. Like God is change. Mm, she would absolutely. That in that book, but like the only constant is change. The difference. And that's like one of the mottos of degrowth is like, it's either degrowth by design or degrowth by disaster. 
like the, the or like mm. change by design or change by disaster like as in change is inevitable like that's just how the world that's just how reality is uh but we we need to make the argument that we can have agency over that change in order to redirect it in a way that we feel is beneficial for like most humans or like for all humans and non-humans as well for that matter absolutely that that's a perfect quote to end on um so i'll, I'll just give my my book recommendations yeah. i've been trying like thinking throughout this conversation, narrowing it down to three. Um, I mean, definitely top of the list uh, would be Byung Chul Han's uh, Psychopolitics. That it's just like a, it's a tiny little book. You can read it in afternoon, but it's given me so many ideas. It was kind of like the starting point for this research project. Um, and then one I don't hear people talk about a lot, but I think is really, really great. So this is Melinda Cooper's Family Values. Um, and that's a really interesting investigation into how neoliberalism has become aligned with neoconservative values. Um, because if you think about it on the face of it, it seems like they'd be kind of contradictory, at least based on uh, most leftist analysis of liberalism. It seems like they'd be contradictory, but they do have this really interesting synergy. And she goes through all of the policies, um, mostly focusing on the history of the US and uh, policies after the New Deal. Um, just great, great book, really can't recommend it enough. Um, and then I guess my last recommendation uh, for just kind of a general overview of, I guess, a neoliberal ontology, which should maybe be understood as a hauntology, um, Pierre Dardot and Christian Laval, The New Way of the World on Neoliberal Society. And that one, much larger volume, um, but that sort of touches on psychopolitics a little bit, but then goes into more of a Foucault um, biopolitics and enterprise self analysis. And they go really in depth into that enterprise model, how it looks, how it manifests. Um, and that's just kind of a great, like, catch-all starting point for where you want to go. Awesome. Well, I mean, I think it says already a lot that we said, well, we'll, we'll keep it to around an hour. And it's been an hour and 45, whatever, 44 <laughs> minutes. But, I mean, that just it just shows that there's just a lot to talk about. And I really hope and I think, like, we can just do more of them. Like, eventually, you know, we can just plan more episodes and whatnot. Your, your podcast is uh, Solarpunk Now. I obviously recommend folks listening to it. This episode would also be there as sort of like a collab thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, Luca, thanks a lot for this. This was, like, lots of fun. Make, give me Gave me a lot to think about. And, as I said, I'm sure we will do it soon-ish again. Another one. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Now is written, hosted, and produced by me, Luca Dowell. The Solarpunk theme song is by Red Keener on SoundCloud. Today's episode was a collaboration with Joey Ayub of the podcast The Fire These Times. You can find The Fire These Times on the podcatcher of your choice or check out thefirethesetimes.com. Follow me on Twitter at SolarpunkCast, Mastodon at SolarpunkCast at Spore.social, or visit SolarpunkCast.net for all episodes including show notes. You can also visit SolarpunkCast.net to donate to the show. Running a podcast takes time and money, and I do all of this myself, so your support is greatly appreciated. That's solarpunkcast.net, link in the description. And remember, the realization of any vision requires action. 
I strongly encourage you to get involved with local organizations whose goals align with the brighter future you want to see. Analysis is important, but we have to back it up with practice. Keep dreaming big and keep up the good work.